of all the enemies, perhaps the hardest, is the one who betrays. First comes the shock. You, you never expect that person. The psalmist was right. If it was an enemy, I could hide. But it's you, my companion, my equal, my familiar friend. Then the shock is followed by the embarrassment, the humiliation. I should have seen this coming. The psalmist said, his tongue is as smooth as butter, but there is war in his heart. His lips are soothing as oil, but they're sharp as swords. Honey in the mouth, knives in the heart. Why didn't I see this coming? Now on top of the injury is the insult, having been played a fool. And that's generally followed by paranoia. I will never give myself to anybody else again. Not like that. Because if I do, even my closest companions can do this to me. Well, then anyone else can. I'm out. So I spent the week uh, just kind of weepy, you guys, with uh, a really heaviness in my heart trying to remember the people that I have walked with through betrayal, trying to remember the people that have betrayed me. A middle-aged man who calls me in the morning and says, um, he's discovered 11 letters written by his wife to her lover, hid them in the top drawer of the dresser. Why? She would write them and not send them, but store them in the top dresser. I don't know. I only guess it's because she didn't have the nerve to tell him she wanted him to discover it. And now that she has, it's out. I'm thinking of the man that sat in my office and with tears coming down his face, he says of his daughter, she says... I abused her, pause, I never touched her. The man that calls me and says he sold his business to a larger company, they promised him in contract that they would keep him employed. Now six months in, they found another lawyer and he's out of it. Gone from the company. He's 40 years old. He doesn't know what he's going to do with the rest of his life. I thought of the friends that I had that have been attacked, not by enemies, but by the friends. And it was a pretty heavy week for me. I thought of you, some of you. Some of you have suffered the betrayal of a broken vow. It wasn't, the some, it wasn't just someone at your table. It was someone in your bed. And they played on the margin that trust creates. Good marriages have freedom, and freedom creates margin, and they took advantage of that. So while they looked you in the eye, they were stabbing you in the back. I'm thinking of some of you that suffered the hidden agenda, people that got close to you, pretended be your friend and 
What they were really doing was getting information from you to gain a competitive av- uh, advantage. I thought of people that have suffered a false accusation. Sometimes it comes from just a misunderstanding. People lift what you said out of the context and they drop it somewhere else. And you I'd say, that is not what I meant and that is not who I am. But that's no longer what people believe because they've lifted it out of the context. Context is everything you say. And now your own words have been turned against you. We live in a day when the accusations are flying everywhere. And there are casualties all over the place. These days it seems to make an accusation is to have the trial. You're guilty until proven innocent. Only you never get to prove your innocence. Because the moment someone attacks you, you can't say anything. You are bound, sometimes by honor and sometimes by law, to say nothing while the other person can just keep piling it on. It's an unfair advantage, you say, and you want so much to fight back. Because when someone betrays you, they are using your vulnerability, your honesty, your generosity, your transparency as a weapon against you. And if you want your enemies to pay, you want your traitors to pay twice. That is why The Last Supper is such a powerful scene that is full of um, insight and redemption. Paul tells us it was on the night he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and the wine and he gave it to his disciples including his betrayer. It was on the night he was betrayed. It was not some other glorious night. It was the night when Judas, as a representative of all humanity, comes to his table, eats what he provides, and then goes out and waits for an opportune time and betrays him. Humanity at its worst and God at his best in the same night. The betrayal and the sacrifice are tied forever. They need each other. We like to think of Judas as a sinister character, as someone who was always plotting and conniving, this dark, smoky, shadowy figure that was always hiding the other hand. And and we 
think this because this is the way that the Gospels portray him. In Mark chapter 3, when the 12 disciples are mentioned, Judas is mentioned last with a comma, followed by the one who would later betray him. In John chapter 6, verse 71, John says, Jesus turned to his disciples and says, I have chosen all of you, though one of you is the devil. John adds, he meant Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him. In John chapter 12, while Mary is pouring the oil out on his feet, John says, Judas, because this is the way he was, was dipping his hand into the treasury and taking something. And so we come by it honestly. We're always thinking this is the way he was. Did Jesus not say in his last prayer, John 17, Father, I have protected those you gave me, save one, so that scripture might be fulfilled. So there it is, from the very beginning, it was known that Judas would betray him. He's different. He's a sinister figure. There's something in him that isn't right. None of the others have that. Can I remind you that all of the Gospels were written after Jesus had come and gone? And so those statements, the one who would betray him, was not known on the day Jesus called the twelve. And when he said, one of you is the devil, it was not known on that day that it was Judas. Can I suggest that no one knew this was Judas. Judas may not have known it himself. We like to think that Judas is another kind of character because that works nicely for us. We can divide humanity into good people and bad people. And the 11 are basically good, but this one here is marked. There's a genetic flaw. He's got a tumor in him that the others do not have, and it has taken over him. Can I remind you that all throughout the gospel, we don't know who the good people are and who the bad people are. Sometimes the people who are supposed to be good, like chief priests and experts in the law, end up being bad, and people that are bad, like prostitutes and tax collectors, end up being good, and sometimes good and bad is in the same person only minutes apart. Peter, you are the rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And then a minute and a half later, he says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of a man. You have to ask yourself, you that have neatly divided all of humanity into two clean categories, how it is that both of them, the good and the evil, can be so close a minute and a half apart? How can you go from being the rock upon which Jesus builds the church to being the devil who would destroy it in a minute and a half? 
The truth of the matter is, evil is not like a tumor, and it's not like a genetic flaw. And when someone does something like betray Jesus, you can't always use your social sciences and backward engineer something to some seminal point where you can say, there, there, you see it, you see it? Nobody else has that. Maybe evil is a virus Maybe it is so close to you that you breathe it every day. Maybe you're in it. Maybe it's in you. Maybe you have it. In defense of Judas, <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to do this. He was not the only one. There were 12 people at that table. And what I've done is to go back and read the synoptic gospels and try to put put the pieces in the right order to try and picture what happened. And, and this is what I think happened. While they were at the table, Jesus took the bread and the wine. He gave it to them. And then after they took it, Jesus let this out. He said, one of you is going to betray me. And then in Luke chapter 22 it says right after he said that, the disciples got into a heated argument over which one of them was the greatest. Isn't that an odd time to have an argument over which one of you is the greatest on the heels of a prediction that one of you is going to betray him? There should have been stunned silence. Instead, there is a bickering among the disciples. The best I can figure is each disciple looked at themselves and thought, surely not I. And then he looked around the table and started seeing other characters and thinking, well, maybe. You know, there's Matthew. He was a tax collector. I can see that. There's Thomas. You know, I was never sure about that guy. There's Peter. He doesn't even know what he's going to say. I... I could see that happening there, but surely not I. And the moment one exonerates himself by pointing the accusation at the other characters around the table, it starts to ante up. I think this happened because it happens every time somebody accuses us. Our first response is, almost always to go, what? Me? Are you serious? Look at you. I saw you just last week. You do this all the time. And the more we defend ourselves by pointing the accusation to others around the table, it just dials up. Jesus breaks into this insanity and in a calm tone says, all of you will fall away. 
There it is. That word, fall away, it means... It means to withdraw. It means to be offended by something the other person has said or done. When someone falls away, as Jesus used the word, it means we see in another person what we don't like and we render some kind of negative judgment about that person. Jesus says, all of you will do this. And then... Peter, because he's always sure he's not like the others. He's the rock. He says, well, Lord, you, you're probably right about them. But you are wrong about me. If everyone at this table falls away, I will never fall away. And Jesus says, Peter, you're right. They'll do it one time, and you'll do it three times before morning. Judas wasn't alone. It was his idea to hand Jesus over to his enemies, but every one of the other eleven seconded the motion. And when Jesus called them out, none of them believed they would do it. Have you ever overestimated your loyalty to Jesus? Do you think he knows something about you that you don't know? And if he told you, would you admit it? Do you think Jesus sees something in you that you don't see in you, but you see it in other people? And when other people point to it, you immediately defend. All four Gospels tell the story of Judas and Peter in the same chapter. I think it's to create a contrast. I think it's a way of saying... You are all capable of doing this. When Christ points something out, you will either end like Judas or you will end like Peter. When Judas receives the bread, he stands up from the table and he leaves the room. And that's what some of you will do. You'll hear something you don't agree with. You'll be so sure that it's wrong. And you'll be so angry and frustrated and bitter at 
that man for pointing that out, that you will go out by yourself and internalize all of those feelings and they will rot your soul. In a strange way, they will distort your personality and you will end up being like the person you just accused. That is one way. This is why Luther King said, we must forgive our enemies, not for their sakes, but for ours. It ruins us. If we can not forgive, the other way is the way of Peter. Peter now sits in stunned disbelief. He was sure he was different, now he learns. He is exactly the same. That's odd, he says. I don't feel it. I don't see it. Then Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has already asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And after you've returned, wait, you mean I'll return? <laughs> yeah. It's going to be an awful three days, but yeah, you'll return. When you return, Peter, strengthen the brothers. Don't accuse them. Don't point the accusation. Strengthen. So I came to tell you this morning that Christ has prayed for you. Some of you aren't even aware of that. Others of you don't care because it seems to you that it's not that big of a thing. You can't possibly imagine that you are that close to the precipice. You are as sure of your innocence as you are of somebody else's guilt. You believe that because the actions of Judas shocks you and offends you, there is nothing of Judas in you. And what you don't know is we all live that close. But Christ has prayed that your faith may not fail, and so it won't. It won't. You must not be afraid. When Christ puts his finger on something in you that you did not think you were capable of, you must own it and admit it. Because you can. Christ has prayed. You'll be back. Embrace it.
Well, this is, uh, this was not the message I wanted to preach this morning. I wrote another one earlier. I won't preach it, but I wrote another one earlier. Because I, I, I came into the week feeling the heaviness of people that have uh, suffered a vow that was broken or an agenda that was hidden or an accusation that was made and it wasn't true. And I wanted so much to just get my arms around you all and tell you this is what you do when someone betrays you. And then partway through the text, it occurred to me that we are all, in fact, capable of this. But Christ has prayed. And so we will return. And when we come back, we will do it in the most life-giving, generative way that you can imagine. God will take the person who is the most messed up and turn their lives into an incredible example of humility and grace and forgiveness. So the only thing I can tell you is if you've suffered the betrayal of someone, imagine yourself with that person at the table. This time you're not Jesus getting betrayed. You're Peter, sure that it's someone else. And the one that you're angry at, the one who has hurt you, is still at the table, hasn't left. And I think we should study Jesus while he hands Judas the bread and says, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. He doesn't mean, hurry up and betray me. He means, make up your mind. He has put his body and his blood in front of this person for the last time. And he says, in effect, to Judas, I am giving you every last opportunity to change your mind. If my life is not enough for you, I'm bankrupt. I don't have anything else. So I want you to study the behavior of the one who loves his accusers and gives his life for the one who is ready to trade it.